0: With one week left in 2020, I am sure that in this year I have consumed more news than in any year of my life. We've all been watching it together, right? From global pandemic to election results to racial tensions. There's been more coming our way than in any time that I can certainly remember. And in this sermon series, where we're looking at what Christmas is in this particular year, when Mike talked last week about Christmas being disruptive, that certainly seemed to fit as part of a largely disruptive year. And I don't know about you, but at a time like this, both in 2020 and coming in through a busy Christmas season, I for one could use some good news. Uh, And so that's what we're going to focus on today is how Christmas is for us a message of good news. And we're going to go to that by diving right into the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which has lots of prophecy about Jesus and Christmas. And we're gonna go to a particular passage. It's a well-known passage that begins with the word comfort. That's not a word that I go around using a lot. It's not sort of in my everyday vernacular. But as I've read this passage and meditated on it, wow, is it an appropriate word and a word that is speaking to me in this moment and I pray that it will speak to you as well. So the prophet Isaiah begins in Isaiah 40 verses one and two with these words. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now the context for this passage is that the whole book of Isaiah is a prophecy uh, that Isaiah has looked into the future by God's vision from the 8th century BC into the 6th century BC and it's a message from God that he will discipline his people to teach them and train them and then there will come a time of comfort which this passage talks about. Now, the opening verses of Isaiah, back in chapter one, uh, God talks about his charges against the people. He said he called them out to be his sacred people, but instead of being devoted to him, they turned away from him. They turned their backs on him, and it showed up in the way that they treated one another. Uh, the orphans, the widows, the most needy in their communities, they were neglecting. And they were supposed to be a people that were a model of his faithfulness for all of the nations of the earth, but in fact, they were just the opposite. They were as unfaithful as they could be. And so God spoke through Isaiah how he was going to deal with his people. And he says he would discipline them, but he would not cast them away. So all of the book of Isaiah up until this point outlines that discipline, that punishment, that judgment from God for their disobedience. And then from chapter 40 going forward, we begin to see the comfort that God would give to them after this time had passed. And so you saw in those verses how God says, your punishment has come double for your sins, but now is the time for comfort. And it's like, I think about when I was a kid, when I would be disciplined by my parents, uh, there, would, you know, there was a the hard part I didn't like. Uh, you know, they, would, they would discipline me, punish me for whatever wrong I had done. But I have a vivid memory as a child of sitting on my dad's lap or my mom's lap and after the discipline had been complete and I was crying and uh, broken over this, um, you know, they would say words of comfort to me. They would speak tenderly to me in that moment. Uh, it was a teachable moment to say, this is why you had to be disciplined. Because you have to learn to obey. You have to learn to treat others with kindness or whatever it was that I had not done. But there was those tender moments after the times of discipline that were deeply formative for me. I've tried to pass those along to my children. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about as I envision this passage. It's God having disciplined his people. And still, this is a prophetic word. He's speaking about what will happen um, after a time of discipline. This tender, fatherly word of comfort and closeness with his people. And this was good news for the nation of Israel. And frankly, it's good news for us uh, because we, just like they, uh, whatever our circumstances, need to rely on, need to know the comfort of God. And we're gonna look at a passage, uh, one through 11 of Isaiah chapter 40, uh, and we're gonna see three different ways that God's comfort uh, emerges The first section is in verses three through five. And we see some really interesting imagery in these verses. It begins saying, The voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Lots of word pictures uh, in these verses to help us kind of get a picture in our mind and sort of feel what's happening here. And it opens up by saying there's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. And this is not random uh, later in Isaiah, in chapter 64, uh, Isaiah describes uh, for the people that through the exile, what was coming is that their land, Jerusalem, the land of Judah, would itself be a wasteland. He says, your cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Uh, Zion is sort of the heavenly name for the city of Jerusalem, and so it, it was literally um because of this punishment, because of this discipline, they would be exiled to the, the pagan nation of Babylon and their country would literally become a wasteland. They would be a wilderness people and so it's in this wilderness that God would meet them. And then it also said he was preparing a highway for our God or, or called them to prepare a highway for our God, which is also interesting imagery. What is a highway good for? Well, a highway's good for going fast. And I think there's a message in here, we don't have time to dwell on it, but after waiting so long for God to act, when the way was prepared for him, he was to come quickly. There's a highway for him to come quickly. And I just think briefly for us, that just rings true for so many of us in our lives. Uh, So often we find ourselves waiting for God to act in one way or another. And there's a truth here that when the way is prepared, God will come and he will come quickly. Another thing we find in this is this, you know, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough imagery uh, that when God is going to come, nothing can stop him. Uh, the, The mountains will be made low. The valleys will be raised up. The rugged and rough places will be made flat and smooth so that this highway is in place for God to come to his people quickly. And this is important because if deliverance is to come, it will come from God directly. It's one of the strong emphases that we'll see actually later on in this passage as well. When God comes to deliver, when God comes to to comfort his people, he does it personally, he does it himself. And so this highway is for God to come to his people in person. And the one thing for people to do is to prepare the way. There's a lot about what God will do in coming to his people, but what the, the people of Israel were called to do, and I think us by extension are called to do, is to prepare the way for God to come. And both for them and for us, I believe this is an act of faith. It's an act of faith in believing that God would come. And this holds true because in the New Testament, we find that John the Baptist was this voice He was attributed to be the one that was preparing the way. And so Mark 1, one through five, Mike referenced this passage last week. uh, Says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. So there's a reference to our Isaiah 40 passage. And what did John the Baptist say? Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. And what were they doing? They were confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so what does it mean to prepare the way for the Lord to come? John the Baptist has, has told us, that, and, and John the Baptist is, is a unique pivotal figure uh, in biblical history, in human history, really, because he's sort of the hinge point between the people of Israel, to which he was a prophet. He was like the last prophet to the people of Israel before Jesus came. And he was also speaking to sort of the post-Jesus, Gentile um Audience. He was, what, the words that he was speaking, he was speaking to the Jews, but it was right in proximity to where the gospel would be opened up to the Gentile other nations as well. So John the Baptist is in effect speaking both to the people of Israel when he says prepare the way and speaking to us when he says prepare the way. And so both for them and for us, what does that mean?s of preparing the way? It's repentance so that our sins might be forgiven. It's confession of sins followed by baptism. And so when we're invited to prepare the way for the Lord to come, if that's the, the responsibility that, that we've been given, that we see in this passage, prepare the way for the Lord, that comes by repentance. It comes by confession. How can we prepare, prepare the way for, the, for God to come in our lives? That's where it begins, by looking inward uh, to recognize The condition of our own hearts, of our own souls, of our own lives, to both recognize and then confess out loud to God and others as appropriate our own sins, our own brokenness, the wrongful attitudes or thoughts or words or actions that are alienating us both from God and from other people. And then not just to confess those, but to repent of them, to turn away, to do what is right, to turn toward righteousness and justice. This is what it means to prepare the way for the Lord to come. This is what makes that highway for our God. And it was true for the people of Israel when they confessed and repented, God came quickly to their deliverance. And I believe there's an invitation for you and me as well that when we confess and repent, God will then come quickly with his presence of comfort, speaking tenderly to us in our time of need. And of course, Christmas is good news because this is the time that God came to us in the most tangible, physical way. The eternal God, the Son, became a human being, Jesus Christ, God with us. His name was given as Emmanuel. We'll see the prophecy in just a few minutes. But God came physically to be with us, to make a way that we might be able to have that forgiveness of our sins. And God will come to you. He will come to me today if we prepare the way. And so the first point that I wanna drive home from this that's coming out of this early section of this passage is that Christmas is the good news that God will come to you when you prepare the way. Christmas is the good news that God will come to you if you prepare the way. But the good news doesn't stop there. The the story continues, this imagery continues to unfold, showing us what it means that God will come. So it continues in verse six. This voice reappears saying, cry out. And I said, so this is Isaiah the prophet responding, interacting with his voice, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So as this imagery continues, it began by describing the glory of God and and the swiftness with which he would come when the way is prepared. And then it turns its attention to the frailty of people, the frailty of human beings, both uh, in the Old Testament times and today, and the imagery that it uses is grass. One writer points out that that's an especially unflattering comparison of people to grass, because grass is weak. Uh, it gets trampled on. It dies really fast if you don't take care of it. Um, grass is not a strong and robust and enduring uh, life form, organism, a part of nature or of anything in our world. And this is what people are compared to. It says all people are like grass. And it's interesting that there's this sort of inclusiveness of all people in this passage because it takes in both the people of God, the Israelites, and then all the other nations as well. And the point I think that it's effective in saying that the Israelites are like grass is that they're weak and there's nothing that they can do to save themselves. They need God if they are going to be delivered. But at the same time, all the other nations of the world are like grass as well. And so when God comes to deliver his people, nothing can stop him. No nation, no power, nothing on earth can stop him when he chooses to come. And so if we're looking at the, the threat to Israel in the day that this was written back in the 8th century BC when Isaiah was first writing this, the external threat to the people of God was the Assyrian Empire, a much stronger and mightier nation. And so the question for Israel is would they trust in God for deliverance or would they trust in themselves to somehow rescue themselves through an alliance with Israel or some other way to deal with the nations that were clearly far more powerful than they and so that was the immediate context in the 8th century, but because, remember, this is a vision, and Isaiah is speaking forward in the 6th century uh, is when these, um, the people of God, the Israelites, would be taken into captivity in Babylon, removed from their homeland, taken into captivity, lived among the pagans in Babylon. And God was also able to speak to their oppressors then. Uh, so whether it was Assyria in the 8th century or Babylon in the 6th century B.C., um, the word of comfort to the people of God is that, yes, you are unable to save yourself, but when I come to save you, Assyria, Babylon, no one can stop me, which is a powerful um, juxtaposition of the, of the might of God and the, the frailty of people, um, both, both the frailty to save ourselves and the frailty of anyone to stop God. God. And then it goes into this picture uh, that that unless we were sort of in the day, um, we might might lose sort of the power of it, but it says this grass withers when the breath of God blows on it. Uh, So in that time, uh, there was this hot, dry wind that would blow in from the east around the springtime or month of May, Uh, and it was so stifling, so suffocating that kind of the whole landscape would turn from the lush green of spring to the dry brown of the hot season. Uh, so there was this experience that the people of God knew that when these hot winds came, it was a rapid transformation of everything just drying up and withering. Uh, and this is what God attributes to his own might and power, that when his breath blows, much like this hot wind, everything just withers in its path. Another reinforcement of the, the contrast between the might and power of God, his ability both to destroy and to comfort, uh, and the, the frailty of of people who are like grass. And so Christmas, as we connect it to uh, this season, the coming of God in Jesus, is good news because of the way that this section ends. It says, even though the people are like grass that wither and fade, the word of God is eternal the word of God is permanent. This word that has the power to dry up and wither everything in its path will not come and go like grass does, but rather it lasts and is permanent. And so the good news of Christmas is that when God comes with his comfort and his deliverance, it's something that is enduring. It's something that is permanent. It's something that can be relied upon. And the coming of Jesus is what declared this. Jesus, God with us, is the only reliable source of peace and comfort, both for the people of God in the Old Testament and for you and me today. And so the second point that we wanna see and sort of take home with us uh, from this passage is that Christmas is the good news that God's comfort will last forever. God says, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly, and this comfort that he brings Is not something that will come and go, but it's something that will last forever. And that is good, good news. There's a third piece of good news uh, that we find in this passage, and it comes in verses 9 through 11. And it continues again with colorful imagery, and it says, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So in this last passage, um, as he continues to describe this voice that is speaking these words of comfort, uh, he moves from um, God speaking the words or or maybe the prophet speaking the words to an invitation to uh, the people of God to speak these words and to not be afraid but to lift up their voice with a shout. Uh, This phrase, do not be afraid, is something that shows up a lot in Isaiah. And I think because of the context, he's speaking to a people who are moving into a time of judgment. That's uh, gonna bring up a lot of fear. And so this recurring encouragement, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. God will discipline for a season, but he will comfort in the end is a message that they needed to hear. It's something that we need as well as we wait so often, uh, as, as is so often our experience waiting for the comfort of God to come. Uh, we're encouraged Simply do not be afraid. Trust in who God is and the comfort that He will bring. But then the central message of this passage says look, it's God who's coming. And just like we saw a little bit earlier in the passage, it's God Himself coming in deliverance. It's not a, a program that He initiates or a, an instruction that He gives from afar for us to follow. It's the presence of God Himself that comes in mighty power and in strength to comfort. He is coming. And that's what we see at Christmas time. That's what we see uh, in the incarnation of God become man, is that the presence of God became a part of humanity, came into the world to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And so here he is, and then he's described as a strong man we have these two descriptions of the mighty arm of God. The first one is that he has arms that are strong enough to break the power of evil. Um, he uses this power to rule, and it says his reward and his recompense is with him. And not only did he show himself mighty uh, in a a literal, physical way when he delivered the Israelites from Babylon and and broke into their uh, oppression to free them and comfort them, he also does the same for us. This is New Testament language in Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15 of the spiritual power of God. And just think about the the might and strength that shows up in this language. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then look at this language. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know how often you think about God's work of salvation uh, in these terms, I think I hit the button that took us in the wrong direction. But it's a a spiritual battle that's happening. It's God showing himself strong in the spiritual realm to deliver you and me and all who will prepare the way for him to deliver us from our bondage to sin, our indebtedness to sin. Um, It's God showing himself strong and mighty to break these powers and authorities. In many cases, we don't even know are holding us back. Right? There's this spiritual battle that, that is happening for our souls, for our lives that, that so often we're unaware of and yet it's as real as the hand in front of our face and God shows himself strong enough to break those powers to triumph over them by the cross. And that's of course Jesus who lived a perfect life and gave himself as a, as a sacrifice for us. He is this mighty, strong man and he uses his strength to save us. To deliver us, he also uses his strength to carry us. And so the end of the passage says that he, he carries the lambs as a shepherd in his arms. And so, what, what a powerful image that is. I mean, sort of the, the two mighty arms of God. With, with one arm, he uses his might and his strength to save and to deliver, to, to break the powers that hold you and me back, that held his people, Israel, back and with his other arm, he gathers us up. It's this language of comfort, of tenderness, of warmth, of care and love, pulls us close to himself and carries us. So he is this strong God who is mighty enough both to save, to deliver, and to carry us. Which brings us to the third point that I want to point out today, and that is that Christmas is the good news that God uses his strength to deliver you and to carry you. And I can imagine uh, some of us are experiencing a lot of the same things these days, and so this need that we feel to be carried and delivered uh, through uh, just the anxiety and and struggle that we're pushing through um, is common to a lot of us. But in other ways, we all have different circumstances. Your circumstances are different than mine, mine are different from someone else's. Uh, But whatever they are, um, we all have this shared need of deliverance from God, we need his strength. And we need his strength not only to save us, but to, to carry us. The good news of Christmas is that it is available. However far away this good news has seemed this year, Or for a longer period than that, uh, maybe for most of your life or all of your life. uh, The good news that you can carry with you from this passage today, from the truth of God's word, is that God uses his strength. And he uses his strength to deliver you and to carry you. So, the three points so far Christmas is good news in three ways uh, that God comes when you prepare the way. that God's comfort is lasting, it's permanent. And finally, that God uses his strength to deliver you and to carry you. And there's two other things I wanna say before we wrap up, two sort of bonus ideas, uh, I think of them, that sort of emerge from this passage. Uh, and the first is a theological implication, um, and it's the idea of what theologians call transcendence and eminence. The transcendence of God is his otherness, his otherworldliness. He's above the world, he's beyond it. Um, the eminence of God is that he is close. It's him drawing near. And and for people who have really uh, thought deeply about this, um, it's created quite a problem and a debate over the centuries. Uh, this idea that God can be both transcendent, outside the world, above it, in control of it removed from it, and yet also intimately acquainted with it and part of it. So in the early centuries, there was a a group of religious, a religious group that tried to reconcile this by saying, um, emphasizing the transcendence of God and minimizing his imminence. And what they said was God as perfect and holy can have nothing to do with a sinful, broken world or the people that live in it. Otherwise, he would become imperfect. And so he remains imperfect distant, aloof, and removed. That's bad news. Much later, in the 19th and 20th centuries, other religious groups, um, ideas emerged like process theology or open theism, which emphasized the eminence of God uh, over his transcendence. And they talked about a God who was so imminent, so close to us, that they emphasized it to the degree that he was sort of experiencing uh, The affairs of the world right along with us, learning and growing and finding things out and discovering new things uh, and having to react and respond um, in the same way that that you and I are without that sort of transcendent power to control and to be sovereign over all things. And so if that's true, then we have a God that uh, while he may love us and care for us, uh, lacks the power to do what we see in this passage, to speak into the future a word of comfort that is enduring and reliable and can be um, the strength that we stand on. And so that's bad news. So if God is only transcendent or if God is only eminent, um, it's not good news for either of us, but the good news of the Bible is that God is both transcendent and imminent. And in fact, it was Isaiah who prophesied what we celebrate at Christmas. Isaiah chapter seven says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This word Emmanuel means God with us. And so the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas, the very birth of Jesus, is the transcendence and eminence of God coming together. Fully God, fully man, in human form, God with us. The mighty power, the transcendence of God, along with this eminence drawing close to us. And why is that important? Why is that good news? Because we need both. We need a God who can deliver us. We need a God who can ensure us both today and forever in eternity, comfort and peace and life with him. And we also need a God who emphasizes with us in our weaknesses that he loves us, carries us, understands us. And this is exactly what the Bible declares, both in the book of Isaiah and throughout the scriptures. And Isaiah puts it in chapter 57, this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, Watch how he brings these two ideas together of transcendence and eminence. He says, I live in a high and holy place, a transcendent place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is both transcendent, high and holy, and he is eminent, close. He's with the one who is contrite and lowly in in spirit. And what what does someone who is contrite and lowly do when, when we're contrite and lowly in spirit? That's the kind of person that recognizes, confesses our sins, our brokenness, our, our wrongdoing, that seeks to repent of those things to prepare the way for the Lord. And so we see the transcendence, the eminence of God coming for those who prepare the way for Him. And then one last thing, Um, and it's about this voice that we see emerging through the passage. Begins with God himself speaking words of comfort and tenderness, and then the passage goes on to say that it is God who is speaking, and then it moves a little bit closer, and it says, uh, I hear this voice that says, cry out, what shall I cry? And so sort of the prophet uh, is, is speaking this message, and then there's this invitation for all of God's people not to be afraid, but to speak good news to one another. And so the point I want to leave us with is this at Christmas time and really any time, the invitation is not just to receive the good news, but it's also to share it, uh, to pass it along to others. Uh, in fact, the passage says, go up on a high mountain and declare it with a shout. I don't know that we need to do that literally, uh, but I think it's a message that, that, sort of, that sort of should stir us in a way that that's, yeah, this is something that we should be passionate and excited about, uh, that we should be sharing the good news with those around us. Uh, very often, and rightly so, we talk about this in terms of telling others who don't know about Jesus, which is vital and important, but it's also important for us to share the good news among ourselves. How, how much of a difference would it make in our homes this next week over Christmas if our interactions are characterized by reminding one another of God's comfort and love, his willingness to come to us when we prepare the way for him. What a difference would it make in our homes this week if we remember that message ourselves and sort of rehearse speaking this good news to ourselves to prepare the way for God to come day in and day out. Reflective, looking inward, um, sort of pondering as we're told uh, the Virgin Mary did when she heard the news that she was gonna give birth to a son. She pondered these things in her heart. So there is good news for you and me this season to reflect on, to carry with us. There is comfort from a God who loves us and has given us this good news of his presence, Jesus being born. And I'll leave us with this final verse from Isaiah chapter 52. I think Isaiah would say it's a beautiful thing if our Christmases look like what I've just described. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And so I pray good tidings to you this Christmas season as we share this good news together that indeed our God reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the kindness of your will that you have made a way for us to experience your presence, that you will come on that highway quickly to us when the way is prepared, bringing us comfort that is lasting and strength to save us and carry us. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. Amen.